Hi all, a content warning that this episode talks about violence, so please be aware and take caution as you're listening today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for being here. This is Ashwini Prasad, your host of the Inclusive Storytelling Podcast. If you're liking these episodes, please leave a review, download, comment if you're on YouTube, and share these episodes. Feel free to connect with me at theinclusivescreenwriter.com or on Twitter and Instagram at The Inclusive Screenwriter. In addition to being an anti-racism and anti-oppression educator, I'm a screenwriter, self-published author, and of course a podcast host. So if I can make our media more inclusive with you, feel free to reach out. All right, let's jump into our episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Inclusive Storytelling Podcast. I'm your host, Ashwini Prasad. And here today, I am with Jess Brady. And I am so excited. Jess and I actually met at a professional level. Gosh, it's probably been about two, three, maybe months now. So I'm super excited. And as I do with all my guests, I'd rather have Jess talk about herself than me introducing you. So Jess, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, Ashwini, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. It is a real privilege to be here with you. I am an anchor with 980 CFPL here in London, Ontario. We are a chorus entertainment uh, radio station, and I've been working now with the company for 12 years in London for almost that entire time, about 11 and a half years in total. Really grew up in London and am so lucky that I have the opportunity to work in this community that I love so much. And so, yeah. As I mentioned, I'm an anchor. I have spent some time on the talk show side as well as a host uh, during the first 18 months of the pandemic. And that was a real privilege to have conversations during that time as well with our listeners and guests from all over the country in a lot of on a lot of days. Uh, so yeah, my, my life is very much revolving around the media world. Uh, but on a personal side, I love being online and being on Instagram and Twitter and love cute dogs. So that's the way to my soul. I'm also a very aggressive laugher, uh, so much so that I have included it in my Twitter bio. <laughs> so nice. if something was really funny, you're going to hear me. And uh, that's probably me in a nutshell, I think. That's awesome. Well, you were spectacular so that uh, folks know I was doing, uh, well, I still am doing a number of diversity, equity, and inclusion modules with Chorus Entertainment. And so Jess and I were able to meet there. So, and uh, you were a great participant. So I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. All right, Jess, so you know season two, you know, it's focused on people who deserve to have like a movie or a mini series made about them. So who did you choose? All right. Well, this was a really interesting person to me, and it's someone that I only learned about just maybe four-ish years ago, and that's Dr. Ornyadega. And Dr. Ornyadega is the second Indigenous person to become a medical doctor here in Canada, and his story is just remarkable in so many ways. And now Dr. Ornyadega was born on August the 10th of 1841, so we're actually coming up to his 181st birthday. It's not that far off. Yeah. Uh, I, I did pull out my calculator to do that math because uh, <laughs> as many people in media know, journalists sometimes are not great at mathematics, even the basic math. <laughs> it's all good. That's a lot of, that's a lot of years. So I applaud you for doing that. 
<laughs> so yeah, 181 years ago, he was born and he was born actually near Brantford here in Ontario on the Six Nations of the Grand River First Nation. And as I mentioned, I first learned of Dr. Onyadega uh, a few years ago. It was during a walking tour actually here in London and it focused on Indigenous history in the city and in our region. And it was hosted by Sarah Mae Chitty, who's a storyteller and educator, Michisagi Anishinaabekwe. And she's a member of Alderville First Nation as well. And I'm really grateful to Sarah May for sharing her knowledge and taking us on that tour because not only did it open my eyes to, uh, you know, Dr. Onyadega, but also a lot of other Indigenous history in our region. And it's just kind of scratching the surface. And I wanted to mention, I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned Sarah May right off the top uh, because of her contribution and kind of, as I said, opening my eyes to this individual. Uh, she works with Western University's Office of Indigenous Initiatives. So it was really cool to learn a little bit about uh, Dr. Onyadega right in London, uh, because I'll get into a little bit more of his history of how he relates to London in a bit. But it was interesting to be standing there on a street corner where I believe one of his offices used to be and looking at it, you know, many years later after, you know, he's been gone and his work is done in this moment. But it was cool to have that kind of history right there in front of your face looking across the street at it. Very cool. And you just happened to do that on a walking tour. So that's really amazing. And I think it's a testament to how much you love uh, where you live, like you were mentioning in your intro, like you're doing the history. So that's absolutely fantastic. Tell us more about uh, The Good Doctor. I'm sure there is a fascinating, fascinating history. Very much so. And it's it's amazing also to see everything that he accomplished. So as I mentioned, uh, his life started in uh, the Brantford area on Six Nations. Uh, and he actually started out going to school at the Mohawk uh, Institute, which of course is a former residential school. And so at that place, Dr. Onyadega learned how to read and write. He was also trained as a cobbler, which is uh, not a term that we hear a lot these days, but it's someone who is trained to uh, fix shoes, essentially, uh, which is really an interesting uh, uh, first form of education. And it was just kind of a fluke or a chance encounter that actually set him on his path to higher education. Because at that time, a lot of Indigenous people did not have the opportunity to go for higher education. Uh, they were very limited in terms of what they were allowed to do because of the Indian Act. And it's, uh, I think, very shocking for many people now to learn the truth of how much they have been restricted Indigenous peoples. And so at that time to move forward in higher education, it was quite difficult for Indigenous peoples. But what led to it was a chance encounter at the Mohawk uh, Institute with a phrenologist. And now for anyone thinking, what on earth is <laughs> phrenology? <laughs> I'm like, I'm literally racking my brain. I know I've heard this term before, but I'm trying like, wait, you tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's first of all, I'm going to say debunked. Uh, this is a, a, a form of um, uh, analysis from way back when that basically believed you could tell things about a person's personality and their uh, intellect through the shape of their head, essentially. <laughs> so you're talking about eugenics, which has completely been debunked. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so we know now that that has nothing to do <laughs> with anything, but back yeah. in the day, it was used to uh, classify people and look at their aptitude in some ways. And so 
as this happened, this uh, American phrenologist was there at the time at the Mohawk Institute, and he came across uh, the doctor, the good doctor, also known as Dr. O, uh, affectionately by a lot of people over time. Mm. Uh, he decided by analyzing the doctor's head that there was potential there for him to be educatable uh, and to move oh, on wow. his education. So can you imagine? Oh, <laughs> no, I, I cannot, because you're telling me that a U.S. doctor, and I'm going to put doctor in quotes just because I want yes. to, went to mm -hmm. Canada to an indigenous residential school, which has horrors that only North America folks are really finding out about that are not uh, inside of First Nation and Aboriginal uh, communities because it was, we were never, like we were completely ignorant from it. Yeah. And then this quote unquote doctor tells Dr. O, who eventually would become Dr. O, Oh, well, mm -hmm. we can educate you, even though there was horrific restrictions on what First Nations people could do and still continue. Um, so we're talking, you know, 200 plus years of oppression in regards to um, really the access that uh, First Nation people could have had. Absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, as you said, it's very difficult for us to understand uh, just the depth of the discrimination and the abuses that took place at residential schools uh, like the Mohawk Institute and all across uh, Canada. You know, there's, as we've been saying in the news uh, and in many discussions across Canada, uh, there's a real reckoning happening right now. And it took far, far too long uh, for uh, the, the rest of Canada to catch up and to listen to Indigenous communities, to the stories that uh, were right there. And so many communities, uh, they are still suffering from intergenerational trauma because of the things that took place. Uh, and it's very difficult for a lot of folks to be able to share their stories. And so uh, there's so much gratitude uh, that I have for Indigenous communities, for people who choose to speak out and to share stories and share knowledge. Uh, and to, you know, even even still to this day to speak about, you know, folks like Dr. O uh, and, and, you know, understand what he went through. So it's, as you said, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a shocking uh, thing to learn about that someone could come in and just say, well, the shape of your head denotes that you are someone <laughs> that can be educated. And it's just, yeah. it's so it's, backward. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely 100% backwards. And it's also like, what makes my head goes to is like, okay, who are the people that were chosen to have this? you know look at their head because I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure there were certain demographics of people that were already oh yeah go into school do your thing but other mm -hmm. people had to go through this quote-unquote test of uh, do they actually have the intellect and to your point Jess really quickly and then I'll, I want to hand it back to you is you know for our listeners just being able to really understand the impact indigenous residential schools had on First Nation people, it, it, it was horrific. Uh, you spoke about the intergenerational trauma. I think there's also such an important discussion today as we honor and make reparations that there's intergenerational wisdom that we could actually learn from. And I remember, you know, uh, it's been a little over a year when the horrors that came out of Kelowna, BC, with the bones of the children that were found there that made international news as it should be because it is something that everybody should know i one of the quotations that really stuck with me was the chief one of the chiefs up, up there said uh, look at all of the schools um, mm -hmm. because the chief knew that there were unfortunately bones of children 
throughout all of the indigenous residential schools. And I would add that Poppy includes the United States. And so really being able to really understand the impact these schools had. And Dr. O may be a success story in so many words, but there was a lot that that was, that was happening that should have never happened. And that we in these conversations need to definitely understand and talk to and be able to highlight absolutely these great voices um, and also understand the history of the Indigenous residential schools and the various communities uh, in Canada as well with the First Nation folks. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, not to uh, get too far ahead of myself, but I, I think that, you know, podcasts like these and also imagining a, a mini series, imagining a movie about these individuals is a way of trying to. Uh, I don't want to say set the record straight, but trying to shift the lens and the focus away from the traditional stories that we tell and focus in on groups that have been marginalized. Because while there are plaques and there are people who know about Dr. O, a lot of folks don't. And if we, you know, make this time to search out the stories and to amplify voices. This is an important way of improving representation for folks all across the country and letting people know more about their heritage. And I think it's a really important thing to have these conversations and to, to really push more information out there because people have a hunger, have a thirst for knowledge, and especially the way that things have woken up and been shaken up in the last year, year and a half. Uh, I think we need to have more of these conversations for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I would love for this movie or miniseries to be in a space where it's absolutely First Nation led and uh, cast and, you know, def definitely people in front and behind the camera folks from from various nations and especially Dr. O's uh, community. That would be amazing. All right. Tell us more. OK, so you learned about Dr. O. Uh, tell us about this fascinating person who was, quote unquote, deemed worthy enough for an education. So after he was kind of picked out as someone who could move on for higher education, uh, Dr. Rowe had some sponsorship through the missionary wing of the Anglican Church. And so they helped to uh, sponsor some of his education. He spent time in the United States uh, at colleges there and then came back into, uh, into Canada, into the Ontario area of Belleville. And so he worked in Tyndanaga, I believe, as a teacher for some time. So it was a chance encounter with royalty, which actually set Dr. O on his path to medicine. So I believe it was in 1860 or so, uh, Dr. O was asked by uh, Six Nations to make a welcome address to the then Prince of Wales, who was going to be then King Edward VII, I believe. And so he was on a tour of Canada visiting. And so uh, the First Nations said to Dr. O, would you make an address to welcome the Prince of Wales? So he did. And the Prince of Wales was so impressed with him, as was the Prince of Wales' private physician, that they encouraged Dr. O to go to Oxford University in England and to study there. And so he went across the Atlantic. And unfortunately, he stayed, I think, only for a few months because as things go, there was a bit of a conflict with his, uh, the sponsorship from the missionary arm of the Anglican Church. And so unfortunately, he had to come back. There's some drama there. And uh, uh, Michelle A. Hamilton has done a lot of work uh, talking about uh, Dr. O's history, and she delves into more of what took place there and some of the history of it. But bottom line, unfortunately, he had to come back. Uh, I have heard that there is, I think, a plaque 
for Dr. O at Oxford though, which is very cool. And that setback, yeah, it, it didn't stop him either, which I think is a real testament to his perseverance because when he came back to Canada, he did go back to Tyendinaga and teach in his previous position. But in 1863, if I'm not mistaken, he enrolled in a Bachelor of Medicine program at the University of Toronto, completed that. And in 1867, he graduated with his medical degree from U of T. And from there, he carried on working uh, across in a number of areas in Ontario, in London. Uh, and eventually he finished his career in the Toronto area. And he was involved in so many things things. Uh, it was amazing to see and also his advocacy uh, for Indigenous communities pushing back against the Indian Act, moving forward, trying to enhance uh, voting rights for Indigenous peoples. So he was very, very much involved in, in much of those discussions at around that time, and I believe it was around the 18, uh, 1880s in, in and around there. And so he's, he's quite the figure, towering in many, many fields. Amazing. And for folks who don't know, U of T is University of Toronto. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he definitely spent uh, most of his time in that sort of Toronto, London area. And London's about two hours from Toronto. So yeah. he definitely, and we're thinking, I'm thinking back then, this is horse and buggy time. So, yeah. you know, two hours today Thanks. would have been, gosh, a day, day and a half. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know how to yeah. change. I don't know how to convert <laughs> driving time <laughs> to buggy, to horse and buggy time. Um, but it would have taken travel for him to go to these different places. Yeah, and he also, I believe, spent some time working and living in Napanee, uh, which is obviously into the further areas of, uh, further east in areas of Ontario. So it's he spent a lot of time in that region and his family had land in Tyendinaga and that's actually where he his remains are buried. Um, when he passed away, I believe it was in 1907, he actually died in Savannah, Georgia. He was there for some respite. Uh, he had not been feeling very well at a previous conference. And so he went to Georgia to uh, try and heal up, I suppose, take some time rest for himself. Uh, and he passed away from a heart attack. And he was so beloved by so many people that when he passed away, he lay in state at Massey Hall in Toronto, which is a very large uh, venue that folks in the Toronto area uh, know of. Uh, and they say that while he was laying in state, 10,000 people came to pay their respects to him. So wow. very well respected man and very much appreciated during his time even, which is you know a wonderful thing to hear because so often people who are progressive and really fight for change. They're not valued in the time that they live in. It's often in hindsight that people appreciate them, but it sounds like Dr. O did have, you know, a lot of people who cherished him and, and valued all the work that he did. And so, you know, thinking about who he is, um, well, his impact, was it because he was like really involved in the community? He was kind of the healer of the community. What led to him being respected as much as he was? That's a good question. And I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, speak too much, I don't think specifically about, you know, uh, from an, the Indigenous communities perspectives, but I know that when he was in London, he was uh, the doctor assigned to Oneida Nation of Thames First Nation. Uh, and so he worked with patients there, but he also worked with patients within the broader community who weren't necessarily Indigenous. Uh, and he 
just built communities, not even just in the indigenous uh, community, but it, he kind of crossed borders, if you will. And so uh, he worked with an organization, uh, I believe it was the International Order of Foresters. And that was a group that provided insurance for its members internationally even. And he helped to start chapters in Australia, in Europe. Uh, so he was sort of a person that I'm sensing really had a way of making connections with others and building bridges and trying to push forward. And he was also very progressive in the sense that he believed in gender equality. So in that organization of the foresters, he pushed to make sure that women could be members as well, which apparently there was some opposition to from within the organization, but he pushed regardless. So it sounds like he was just someone that wouldn't take no for an answer. And it felt strongly about something, he would go for it. Uh, and I, and I, that's the sense that I get from, from the reading that I've done of the pieces uh, that are out there. And it sounds like he had an absolutely remarkable life. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be interested in learning more. And it sounds like there was a book, you mentioned the author, will you say that was it Michelle? Michelle A. Hamilton, yeah, she co-authored a book with Keith Jameson about Dr. Ornyadega, and uh, it's it's a fascinating story, and I, I haven't had the opportunity to read that book yet, but I think that uh, it really delves into more of his history, and you will probably learn all sorts of very interesting facts, including that uh, uh, Professor Hamilton thinks that he, he had probably at least 17 siblings, <laughs> which nice. is... Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and yeah. he was his third cousin. Also, was a very esteemed entertainer and poet from the nineteenth uh, century, Pauline Johnson, uh, and she was very, very popular during that time as an entertainer and uh, dramatist on stage and a poet. And uh, it's pretty amazing all of the connections that he had, and it's it's a uh, it's a really neat thing. Very cool. So, if you had to choose between a movie or a mini series for Doctor O, which one would you choose? Ooh, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I think I would say a mini series because that way I feel like there's an opportunity to really delve in and learn some more details and perhaps give enough time to each chapter of his life, or you know, a larger chunk in each uh, in each sitting, if you will, a movie. Uh, might only be about, you know, two, two and a half hours, maybe a little longer if you're, you know, going for <laughs> a, yeah. a longer epic, you know, but yep. uh, I think a miniseries would be great because you could really pay time and attention uh, and give detail. So that, that would be my pick, I think. I would agree. I was thinking this would definitely very easy be four to six episodes, the standard kind of 45 minutes, but even 45, 45, 55 minutes, you, like you were saying, I think we could have a great establishment of telling the story again by Dr. O's uh, community and First Nation members, and uh, definitely by their voices, we could really establish that time period, what was happening with Indigenous people at that time, and whatever people choose to, to tell. If they choose the Indigenous residential school story, great. If they are like, no, we don't want to go there, awesome. Whatever they choose to, I think getting the establishing shots definitely in the beginning of that first yeah. episode would be a lot of fun. Uh, just to understand right, what was happening. How did Canada look like uh, 200 years ago? 
Yeah. Again, from the First Nation perspectives and then looking at Dr. O and uh, yeah, I'd be fascinated to know his story about his education, what happened in Oxford. Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost like the story of perseverance because he was like, well, OK, let me just get educated in Canada now and then coming back to his community and to be that healer and and then also broadening. And like you said, it seems like he was just this person that built community with many folks. And I mean, to have 10,000 people people come and one you're laying in state which is huge mm -hmm. and then to have so many people come and honor you that is a huge testament to Dr. O. Yeah it's it's amazing to you know hear all of what took place and I, I can only imagine you know if someone were to say to me okay you have to make your pitch for uh for the miniseries for the movie and that was I, my I think next I can... question well, <laughs> perfect was I prepared maybe yeah, right exactly <laughs> maybe maybe you know but I think that it, it kind of pitches itself in a way because not only is there you know I think the moral importance of telling this story of sharing uh indigenous stories and as you uh, pointed out earlier on in our chat, making sure that Indigenous uh, creators are, you know, front and center in the handling of this miniseries, making sure they are driving the narrative and choosing the shots, everything. But I think that there's just so much to recommend it. There is the perseverance angle of not letting anything stand in your way, especially during just extreme circumstances of discrimination and racism that were rampant at that time, which we know for a fact, but also there's adventure, there's a brush with royalty, there are possible scenes of being on a ship, a steamer going across the mm -hmm. Atlantic Ocean. I can, I can see it now, the picture boards, the, the yeah, division boards exactly. of the layout. I think it, it, it really does pitch itself for a miniseries or a movie. Uh, and that's what I would say. It's, it's the amazing things that people are capable of doing and, uh, and, and, and restoring that perspective that I think has been so overshadowed for hundreds of years, making sure that Indigenous voices are front and center and that the broader society starts to listen more and learn more. Because as you said, uh, you know, off the top of this conversation, so much was hidden for a really long time from people in our education system. And it was, it was done on purpose to hide that truth of what took place. And so now we've opened Pandora's box. We need to keep going and keep learning. Difficult discussions, really uncomfortable sometimes, but we need to do this. Learn the stories of people so that we do better and that we can help on that path to reconciliation. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's not, you know, it's not past me that I don't have First Nation um, ancestry. And I'm not sure about you, Jess. Um, I do not know. Yeah. So it's two people, right, that aren't part of the community. But I hope that people can take away that we're trying to be allies here. We're trying to be advocates. Yes. And our goal is uh, not to take the story, but to advocate for Dr. O's story to be you know get the funding and get it made and make sure that you have like we're saying again we're kind of saying it over and over again but make sure this point is not missed led Absolutely. by first nation and dr o's community yeah. have them be the storytellers around this i think is huge and i think it's, it's yes. so important and i'm hopeful like i see things like reservation dogs is now season two it's going to be coming out uh in august which i think august 2022 which i think is great and mm -hmm. you know a lot of folks have I've been praising 
um, it, definitely in front of the camera, uh, the different storytellers. And my understanding is behind the camera as well, there's various folks from various nations that are part of uh, creating that show. And it's like, okay, thank goodness. Like, I love seeing it. And even Miss Marvel has had Pakistani and um, Southwest Asian and North African directors. And I see a lot of names. I love seeing on that show when I look at the credits. So I definitely want to push that narrative and, you know, uplift these voices so that uh, hopefully somebody listening will take an interest in Dr. O's story and what Michelle and Keith have been doing, the professors have been doing in their book. I think it's, uh, there's so much out there and I want to be able to do that. Like for me, a lot of times these will become documentaries and they're great. And uh, I think docs are important. I also think that sometimes, unfortunately, there's only a subset of people that watch documentaries. And so it'd be great to get them into the mainstream conversations and, and have, you know, something that could be mainstream that people will, I think will absolutely be fascinated to watch. Absolutely. It's, it's all about, you know, getting it into onto people's plates right and as you've said it's making it available and I also wanted to note there was a great CBC podcast that I, I took a listen to and, and saw their their write-up on Dr. O the secret life of Canada they did an episode on him uh, it was about like three minutes and 45 seconds uh, where they they talked about him I think it was titled shout out to Dr. O and so <laughs> this is the type of thing that we need to see more of right having those maybe smaller portions and, you know, stories that lead you into the longer form pieces, which is exactly your point, you know, making it uh, digestible out there for people. And then they can, you know, take that and run with it and, and keep learning. And uh, I love to see more people getting the chance to tell their own stories. And uh, I, I hope that, you know, we can all be as, 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 positive allies as we can and use our platforms to help spread that message. So uh, to all your points of, you know, making sure that it's Indigenous voices that are leading these conversations, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, if I can do anything to help share a platform, you know, highlight anything, that's what I would love to do. Yeah, imagine on your radio show, uh, you'll be interviewing the person that plays Dr. O. How exciting would that be? <laughs> I would love that. That would be so great. Yeah, I hope it I hope it happens sooner rather than later. It would be a yeah. wonderful thing to see. Full circle moments, right? There you go. 100%. <laughs> and it's interesting you talked about the CBC you know, podcast and it's like, okay, no secret life. No, Dr. O's does not need to have a secret life. No, yeah. no, we want him out there. We want him, we want his story. Cause yeah, like everything you mentioned, you know, uh, everything you kind of had to persevere through and the discrimination and the racism we're talking about. I mean, it was institutionalized. The Indian oh, yeah. Act in Canada was horrific and people can take a look, but briefly it is, it was limiting, it was discrimination, it was racism. It allowed for, for example, uh, children to be taken away from their families. It was lawful, you know, like it was the Canadian government that allowed these Indigenous residential schools to to continue and, and continued until 1996, which I think a lot of people don't realize. And I've had people say, you know, you look at these old pictures, but 1996 was not that long ago. It was not. And so, and there's yeah. so much still in play within legislation uh, at the federal level that is unjust. And, you know, we have in present day so many different Indigenous communities that don't have clean water to drink that, that comes out of their taps. They can't drink it. They can't bathe their babies in it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all around 
uh, our, our communities uh, and indigenous communities are not far away from larger city centers. And so to think that I here in London can turn on my tap and have water, but First Nations that are maybe 25 kilometers away or are even further, perhaps they can't do that or it's spotty at best. Some days they can, other times they can't. And so that I think is something that people really forget about. And it's it's blows my mind that in 2022, that this is still a situation and there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. And, and so for reconciliation to really mean something, uh, you know, I hear often from Indigenous peoples uh, in their messages out to the media, they say, there's a lot that has to happen right now. It's not about the past. Mm -hmm. It's about making meaningful steps forward and taking action and holding the government accountable and others, you know, in our personal lives. Uh, we all have a role to play in reconciliation. And there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And, you know, I, I am a huge advocate and I, I will to clearly state my bias on this is that we can absolutely uplift stories. Like, honestly, you, you get a story like Dr. O become mainstream and then all of a sudden all eyes are on the exact issues that you were talking about. And I think that yeah. is the power of media. That is the power of entertainment and uh, create it sustainably so that people can continue because we don't want it to be, oh, this movie miniseries came out and then two weeks later we move on to the next big thing. What's, exactly. What can we do to highlight these stories and make sure that the accountability, like you're saying, clean water, electricity basics uh, should be happening for all Canadian citizens, all people in the world, um, making sure those basics are there and that we're holding the stories, uh, not mm -hmm. just for a kind of one and done mentality or until the next big thing happens. I think you're spot on with that, is that creating that sustainability. And I do think the power of media and entertainment comes. And so I, I'm looking forward to Dr. O's story. That would be absolutely amazing. I think it would be so fantastic. It and yeah, yeah. And like you said, everything from, uh, you know, unfortunately, the perseverance and one day, I hope that we can just stop using that word and just be like, they oh, were great. Sure. But we know that Dr. O persevered. And like you said, a brush with royalty. And then coming and becoming this amazing leader in the community that, you know, when he passed, so many people came to pay uh, final respects. Definitely somebody that's amazing and enough for educators to write a book about him. Like, that's a big deal, too. So uh, thank you so much, Jess, for introducing us to Dr. O and just a taste of his story. And do you have offhand, do you have the title of the book that you were referencing? I do. The name of the book is called Dr. Onyadega, Security, Justice, and Equality, and it's by Keith Jameson and Michelle A. Hamilton. So that is uh, definitely a book that I'm going to be picking up, I think, making sure that I read that so I can learn a little bit more about Dr. O. And uh, just really thankful that I've had the opportunity to learn as much as I have thus far. And, uh, you know, being able to read the pieces that are online, like I mentioned, uh, from uh, Professor Hamilton and also the folks at uh, the CBC podcast, Secret Life of Canada, and also Sarah Machetti uh, for the first initial introduction with that walking tour here in London. So that's, uh, I'm just super grateful that there's so much uh, information out there, so many resources for people to tap into. 
Yeah, and I appreciate you highlighting that. And, you know, for folks that are listening outside of Canada and, and other parts of the world, these are available to you. If you have a good internet connection, and I recognize not everybody does, but if you're able to, I think reading about Dr. O's story would be amazing. And I hope maybe, maybe somebody is is listening and is like, yep, let's make a movie. Let's make a miniseries. <laughs> not movie, miniseries. Let's make yeah. this miniseries. That let's is amazing. Netflix. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It sounds like a fascinating, fascinating story. So I think it'd be super cool. I'm already kind of seeing like, you know, uh, the Prince of Wales scene already in my head as well as, as part of the trailer, right? To get, get people in. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Jess. So I'm curious, how can people get a hold of you and learn more about you? Well, <laughs> if they would like to tag along for some aggressive laughter, lots of acute animals and a healthy dose of news and information, uh, they can find me on Twitter. My handle is at JessBrady980. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jess. And you are also the anchor. So um, yes. people can tune in and remind us about the station you're on and what days you are on the air. Absolutely. I am the afternoon anchor on 980 CFPL, which is a radio station here in London. You can find us at 980cfpl.ca. And I'm on from 12 in the afternoon until six o'clock in the evening for your news updates. So that's where you can find me on air. That's awesome. And everybody, it's London, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Jess, for being here. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. You take good care. Thanks again for being here. And again, if you're liking these episodes, feel free to leave a review, download, comment, and share. And always remember, if I can support you in making our media more inclusive, feel free to reach out. I'm a screenwriter, podcast host, and an author. And I'm at theinclusivescreenwriter.com or the Inclusive Screenwriter on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.